The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. We continue our discussion about Alexander the Great this episode. Let's take a brief timeline survey on where we are now with Alexander. Alexander was born in Pella, Macedonia in July 356 BCE. In 338 BCE, at the age of 18, Alexander had a large participation in the Battle of Chironea under the generalship of his father. In 336 BCE, at the age of 20, Alexander ascended to King of Macedon. After a couple years of consolidating power both internally in Macedon and with his immediate external neighbors, the Greeks and the Thracians, he started his assault on the Persian Empire in 334 BCE. We spent the last three episodes talking about the first three of Alexander's four major battles. The Battle at the Granicus River, the Battle of Issus, and the Battle of Gagamela. Alexander had defeated the Persian king Darius III at the Battle of Issus and the Battle of Gagamela. What I'm getting at is that for the first five episodes of this podcast series on Alexander, things seemed to be constantly looking up for him. And while he faced overwhelming odds, he seemed to handle these fairly easily in set-piece battles. This episode, we're going to see things get a lot harder for Alexander for several reasons, although it's probably safe to say that some of these were tensions that had been building for years. Last episode, we ended with Alexander's victory at Gagamela. Alexander had soundly defeated the Persian king Darius III, but after Gagamela, Darius himself had been taken and killed by a former satrap of his, Bessus, who now proclaimed himself to be successor to Darius, and would prove a thorn in Alexander's side. In other words, while Alexander had defeated the actual Persian king and controlled a large amount of the former Persian empire, he was not the uncontested ruler of the entire former Persian empire. So what was he the empire of at this point? By now, Alexander's empire was huge. In the west, he had Macedonia, Greece, except for Sparta, Anatolia, Egypt, the Levant, Babylon, and Persia. Areas that are bordered today by modern-day Macedon, Egypt, Libya, to the eastern edge of Iran. And Alexander was a king constantly on the move, further away from the heart of his kingdom, Macedonia. He needed a way to administer this large territory, just as the Persian king had had his satraps. So as Alexander would gain large chunks of territory, he would put it under the control of trusted generals of his, usually of the older guard of his father's generation. In the Greek, Macedonian, and Thracian areas, his general Antipater, who in some ways had acted as a surrogate father to Alexander, maintained control, and did in fact have to deal with the Greek uprising or two, which he would brutally crush. In what would mostly be modern-day Turkey, Alexander placed his general Antigonus, also known as Antigonus Monophthalmus, which means Antigonus the One-Eyed, as he had apparently lost an eye during a siege. Again, this proved important, as Antigonus would end up defeating a few Persian armies that had attempted to block Alexander's supply line back to Macedonia. After Gagamela, Alexander placed his trusted general, and if Arian is to be believed, his constant foil in strategic decisions, Parmenio, at the Persian capital of Ekbatana. This is the same Parmenio we heard of in every battle coming up with alternate plans against Alexander's, although always with respect and mutual trust. Parmenio also had the important task of guarding the royal treasury, which goes quite a ways to show just how truly Alexander did trust him. If you're looking at a map 
and you listen to the episode on Egypt, you might be wondering who is in control of Egypt, and as far as I can tell, nobody, or possibly Antigonus, just because he was closest. But Alexander did leave garrisons in Egypt, and what's clear is that what was more important to him was maintaining his supply line, as I alluded to when I described Antigonus. Now this supply line would be important for communication, and especially on the initial legs of the campaign, to replenish men and horses. Food would be important too, although they often lived off whatever land they happened to be in, and the 4th century BCE Macedonian army is famous for having an amazing ability to carry their supplies without carts or pack animals, something which contributed heavily to their speed. But as Alexander conquered more former Persian territory, Alexander started mixing his army with Persian soldiers and horses. He also encouraged his men to marry Persian women. While generally Macedonians were still in the highest officer positions, it seems that Alexander was trying to build a somewhat multicultural army, which made sense. At this point, he was deep into Persian territory. It only made sense to enlist Persian soldiers and horses. Gagamela was in 331 BCE, and by 330 he claimed that a dying Darius III proclaimed that Alexander should be his successor. I leave it to the listener whether or not to believe that. Regardless, he was in control of the aforementioned huge empire. The problem was that Bessus was now proclaiming to be the ruler, and Alexander couldn't let this quote-unquote usurper, and I use that in air quotes because that's more or less what Alexander was at this point, but he couldn't let this usurper be a constant thorn in his side. 330 BCE is the turning point, but not just because of Alexander's accession to the Persian throne. 330 marks when things start going downhill for Alexander. It's not that he didn't continue to be victorious. Alexander did continue to be victorious, and it's not that he didn't expand his empire more while at the same time further feeding that pothos, that longing that keeps coming up with Alexander. He still founded cities named after himself, Alexandria, one of the most notable ones being the Afghan city of Kandahar. Kandahar is a corruption of the word Iskander, which was how Alexander was known in the East. But the problem is that tensions were building on several levels. For one, Alexander was starting to take the Persian custom of proskinesis. This was a custom that Persians would bow and prostrate themselves before the great ruler and possibly kiss his hand. It's always hard to pin down an exact reason Alexander did something or to psychoanalyze him. But one reason he probably did this was to get more support from Iranian upper classes. But it's also possible that he really did think he was becoming a god. And as I've mentioned on previous episodes, he often did things that were legendary, such as cutting the Gordian knot or claiming legendary ancestry, as he said he was a descendant of the hero from the Iliad, Achilles, on his mother's side. Alexander started demanding this of his Greek and Macedonian subjects, and the Greeks and Macedonians did not like that, thinking, possibly correctly, that Alexander was trying to make himself a living god. Alexander would eventually back off a bit on this, only demanding it of his Persian subjects, but not before it caused more problems and tensions, which I promise we'll get into, but probably next episode. In 330, a plot to kill Alexander was being formed. At the time, Alexander trusted Philotus, the son of Parmenio, and saw him twice a day for reports. The plot was finally revealed and stopped. Now, 
Flotus wasn't involved in the plot, but it seems that he knew about the plot and made the mistake of not telling Alexander about the plot. For this, Alexander had Philotus executed. I say this partially to show Alexander's brutality, but also to show that Alexander created an obvious problem for himself here. The problem is that Alexander had just recently put Philotus's father, Parmenio, in control of the former Persian areas, and more importantly, the treasury, which was huge at that time and place. So Alexander sent out messengers to four generals that were in camp with Parmenio to kill him before he could find out about the execution of his son and make moves against Alexander. They succeeded, and this general who had been nothing but loyal to Alexander met a tragic end at Alexander's hands. Also in 330, Alexander set out on campaign against Bessus in Bactria and Sogdiana, which is modern-day Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and a bit of Kyrgyzstan, as well as going through the area that is partially modern-day Afghanistan. This was another source of tension, as both the fighting and terrain here were difficult. Progress was slower. Guerrilla tactics were used, making it difficult for Alexander to win the war in a single set-piece battle, as he had before. It required several long sieges of cities. The area was cold and rocky and also had deserts, and there was much more frequent fighting. Fights were for smaller amounts of territory that was further and further from what had been the core of the Persian Empire. Alexander had been seriously injured on more than one occasion. Contrast this with his earlier progress, in which Alexander had won large blocks of land in three major set-piece battles, Granicus, Issus, and Gagamela. Yet, he still won, and in fact his flexible military genius was on display here as it was during the great battles, even if these were harder-fought wins for less territory. These victories didn't necessarily make Alexander's army any happier. The burning of Persepolis, which we saw last episode, should have been the end of the campaign. The great king was dead. The Athenians got their revenge for the 5th century destruction of Athens. Who cared about this usurper in areas that were far further than they ever expected to go anyway? Even worse, a year into the campaign, Bessus was betrayed by yet another usurper named Spitamenes, who became the new focus of Alexander's attention. Spitamenes actually killed Bessus. So, from the soldier's point of view, when would this end? During this time, Alexander started drinking more alcohol and having drinking bouts. Violent drinking bouts. This came to a head at a banquet in 328 BCE in Maraconda, modern-day Samarkand, in Uzbekistan. You may remember Black Clytus as the man who saved Alexander's life in the battle at the Granicus. The battle was in honor of Clytus, who was supposed to take over a satrapy the next day. Both men were drinking, and while the accounts don't all agree on exactly what started the fight, they all agree on two things. It ended with Alexander throwing a javelin through Clytus's heart, killing him. And, even though this was in the theme of Alexander removing older generals, as we saw with Parmenio, and Clytus had been of Philip's generation, all the ancient accounts agree that Alexander grieved greatly at this act and regretted it deeply. Things were so bad that during this three-year or so campaign, a second plot was formed against Alexander's life. Again, the conspirators and plot were revealed and executed. Included in those executed was Alexander's own historian, Callisthenes of Olynthus. We still don't know whether he was actually involved in the plot, but Callisthenes had earlier spoken out against Alexander's requirement of proskinesis, so that probably put a target on his back. 
Now, I should point out, history has many examples of rulers who went on killing sprees within their own court and were often considered paranoid. I don't think that is the case with Alexander. He didn't seem to have large purgings of his court. And as we'll see at the end of this episode and next, he has two mutinies coming up in which nobody ends up punished. So I think it's worth noting that besides a brutal killing of Clytus out of a drunken fit of anger, Alexander was not having mass killings of potential political enemies and didn't seem to be paranoid overall. This is not to exonerate Alexander of his ruthless behavior. And if you weren't considering Alexander to be ruthless up until now, these actions should have convinced you. Alexander's pothos that the ancients keep bringing up tends to soften some of his crueler acts. But we must remember, he was a ruthless conqueror, and he could be ruthless when necessary with his own people. Plus, these plots and Alexander's reactions are indicators of the growing tensions and higher stakes decisions Alexander was having to make. By the end of 328, the fighting was mostly over and in 327, Alexander married a captured daughter of a defeated chieftain. Her name was Roxana, the modern version of an old Iranian name, Rakshna. The story is that he fell in love with her immediately on sight. She would eventually give birth to his son, Alexander IV, a son Alexander the Great would never meet. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So Alexander had crushed all Bactrian and Sogdianan opposition. The whole of the former Achaemenid Persian Empire was now under his control, and yet he pushed on further east. He pushed on towards the Indian subcontinent. Again, there was tough fighting. The terrain was again very different, and monsoons would often cause problems with wood in weapons and equipment that wasn't used to such damp weather. He crossed the Indus River and found himself up against a king that we now know of as King Porus. I say this because that was almost certainly not his name. Porus was the name of the area, and the Greeks writing about Alexander probably just wrote King Porus in the way a future historian writing about America might call the president President America if they for some reason didn't know the president's name at this time. At any rate, the battle against Porus would be the final of Alexander's four great battles, the Battle of the Hydaspes River, 326 BCE. While Alexander had many battles, typically Granicus, Issus, Gogamela, and the Hydaspes are known as his four great battles. Unlike the other three great battles, I'm not going to go into as much detail for this one, partly because you've probably gotten a good idea as to how Alexander's military mind worked at this point but also because this battle ended up being probably the least strategically impactful for Alexander's legacy. When Alexander eventually dies, this part of his empire would end up with one of his generals, Seleucus, who would then trade it away for military support, partially in the form of elephants, that he could use against his fellow Diotiki, or successors. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get into that next episode. The battle took place on two sides of the Jhelum River, a tributary of the Indus River. We still aren't sure exactly where it took place, but it would have been probably along the aforementioned Jhelum River. This was monsoon season, which meant the river was fairly swollen, and King Porus positioned himself at a place that he assumed Alexander would need to use to cross. Alexander kept many troops on this opposite side of the river from Porus, and mounted troops were moving up and down shore, shadowing each other from both sides. Alexander apparently left a look-alike at his tent to give the appearance that he was still there in camp, when in fact, he took a detachment of his forces and moved about 27 kilometers upriver 
to find another place to cross. It was a stealthy move, and we are told by Arian that he used skin floats filled with hay and smaller vessels cut in half, the 30 oared galleys into three. Alexander was able to come up effectively behind Porus. Now the battle gets a bit complicated at this point. This was one of Alexander's more difficult, if not most difficult battles, and the Macedonians did take losses. But Alexander did eventually prove victorious, and in victory made King Porus an ally, if not outright vassal of Alexander, further ensuring Alexander's defense at the rear as he would push further and further east. Except for one problem. Alexander's men were done. They would not go further east. They were tired, they had been away from home for almost a decade, and they had long passed the original strategic and quote-unquote moral goal of defeating the Persian Empire. So Alexander's men mutinied and refused to go further east. And on that, my friends, we are going to leave on a little cliffhanger. Will Alexander persuade his men to go further? Will there be repercussions? What happens after that? Find out next time, listeners, as we complete, yes, complete the saga of Alexander the Great. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.